2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. If you're a regular listener to this show, you know that we don't do these often, but uh, they're always a good time. Live episode alert. Hello. Hello. I I failed to introduce my co-hosts here. It's Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. You you guys, we just got back from uh, lovely Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We always go to Pittsburgh when it's sleeting, (laughs) very gray, very dark, and it's still lovely there. still fun. It's still a good time. Uh, who did you talk to, Aaron, at this live show in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? Well, um, regular listeners will know that we have a uh, partnership with uh, the University of Pittsburgh writing program. They bring us and a writer there each semester. We tape a live show. This one, this time we got bumped up to the big room. Oh, yeah. We're in the big theater because um, we had a big guest. Uh, repeat caller, Wesley Morris uh, from the New York Times. Uh, the last time I talked to him, he was actually at Grantland, so we talked a lot about... Everything that has happened in between, both in his own writing and uh, in the culture. A lot of issues of the day were covered. It was topical. Yeah, got, to- got topical. You know that if we're taping the intro within one week of something happening, it's because it's topical. <laughs> you guys were on the news. Um, it was a really fun time. Thanks to uh, everyone who brought us out there. Thanks to all these students who came and asked great questions. Uh Wesley is such a good talker. I wish that we actually could like put out not just uh, this podcast, but everything he said at the bar afterwards, etc. It was all a material. Wesley went on a long rant. I feel like people should know that Wesley went on a long rant about decorum in uh, men's locker rooms. We, pretty much uh, the entire evening after this, we just talked about locker room etiquette. I feel like there's a 50-50 chance that there's going to be a whole episode of Wesley's podcast still processing on locker room etiquette. I was going to say, we, I feel like we'd be blowing up his spot, except I think he'll probably blow up his own spot with his views on locker room etiquette. So uh, stay tuned uh, to uh, Still Processing if you want to know about that. But uh, this was a great conversation. Hey, if you want to know about like a lot of different things, subscribe to lots of newsletters. But once you subscribe to a lot of newsletters, you're going to want to have a newsletter of your own. And there is no better place to start one than with MailChimp. I'm always impressed. Max, you know I'm the kind of person who downloads lots of new apps, <laughs> signs up for new services, uh, and shows them to other people. And one thing I'm impressed with is almost every time I sign up for something, if there is a way to integrate a newsletter, there is already a MailChimp integration. So by getting a MailChimp newsletter, you are future-proofing your own life in apps that you will try two or three times and then delete. But you won't be deleting MailChimp because... Uh, most of the people I know who've had MailChimp newsletters have some of them are over a decade old. No one goes off MailChimp. I've never heard about someone leaving MailChimp. I'm never leaving MailChimp. The long form podcast is never leaving MailChimp. We're forever married. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here is Aaron live in Pittsburgh with Wesley Morris. Great. Hello, Wesley. Hi, Aaron. You've been on the show before. Yes. The last time we just looked up backstage, it was 2014. Uh-huh. You were writing for Grantland. Was it the first time? That or was the, the la- first time. Okay. You did an episode with Max in between there, but I consider that non-canon. <laughs> really? So it's your, it's your, it's this your is, show. This, well, but this is like me and you have our own dialogue we do. that we're building on. Yes, um, yes. This is the pull quote from your first appearance on uh, Long Form, and I think it's kind of an interesting place to jump off uh, on the last five years of your writing. Um, That's what writing about race and popular culture is for me. It's crime reporting. It's not me looking for an agenda when I go to the movies, but I feel a moral responsibility to report a crime being committed. That's what I'm forced to do over and over and over again. And uh, if I look over the last five years, I feel like... um, well, you wrote a piece in, in the Times uh, magazine 
I believe the piece was called The Morality Wars, about mm -hmm. what it means to criticize art in 2019 when a lot of the dialogue is no longer about the art itself, but often about the larger issues it brings up. Like, I think you even actually had a quote in that, um, in Morality Wars, where you were like, I generally would leave the mention of the mo movies, sexism, homophobia, etc., till the last paragraph, but now no one is waiting for the last paragraph. What has it been like um, having the way that art is written about from a critical perspective change uh, so dramatically in the last five years? I, well, okay. So I believe everything that was in that piece. Like mm. I know that I'm right. Um, <laughs> but I also think that the way I learned how to think about this stuff was I needed to at least explain the thing for what it is, right? Like the basic sort of furniture that you have to put in the room of a movie review. I guess I should say we all would be agreeing that if we're talking, the thing under consideration is the movie, right? Mm -hmm. So the furniture for the review would be who's in it and what the plot is and maybe who made it. And then once that's established, I mean, at least this is a version of a way that I used to think about film criticism. Um, you do the reader the favor of at least establishing where they are before you take out your spray can or your baseball bat or your match and proceed to do, well, this is assuming that the thing is, is bad and doesn't work, right? If it works, you know, you don't touch anything and you just sort of like want to respect the thing and you want to say how comfortable all the furniture in the room is. But I think in order to be fair to the thing you're about to dismantle, I think it's useful for the reader to understand what it is that you're about to do when you say that the thing is racist or homo and sometimes it, it wasn't always like that right the example that i give in that piece is a movie that isn't about any of the is this movie called in the land of women starring meg ryan and a young Kristen stewart adam brody is the protagonist of that movie and it's about how he falls in love with the meg ryan character i believe and i at the end of the review basically complained that on top of everything else, that the fact that the movie doesn't work and, you know, Meg Ryan, who I love, is not very good, but she's also misused. And, and in a parenthetical, I mentioned that the people who'd probably be making this work would be young white men. Whereas I think now if that movie, well, that movie wouldn't come out now, which is a separate conversation and very sad, um, despite it not being good, there's no sort of, cultural infrastructure for something like this. It would, or it would be on a streaming service um, and 60 minutes long. Um, I think that now that review, it might begin as a complaint against the mere existence of this movie. Like the, the whiteness of the movie wasn't a criticism, but now I think we're at a point where we're kind of fed up a little bit with the same people telling the same stories that you come out of the gate exasperated at the sort of topical problem that has nothing to do with whether or not In the Land of Women works as a movie. And I don't think that it's illegitimate, but it isn't just, the, the, the thing that I noticed was that it wasn't just the movies, right? It's like every avenue of culture has some version of this problem. And that was the thing that I felt was, to me, a kind of, a crisis of, of thinking. And it isn't so much that the thinking being done about the way representation and identity work in popular culture and other art forms isn't valid. It's just, I'm kind of frustrated by like what we can and cannot talk about because the value of the change that is obviously happening and that you know all the people who wanted this change to happen are excited about is too high to then say that the thing that has been given to us in the context of all this change isn't very good. I hear that, but I don't know if that's really how it should work. But to be fair, 
there was a point, and I'm thinking specifically, I will, I will offer Boomerang as a, as a case in point. Boomerang is, a, is an Eddie Murphy romantic comedy starring pretty much every famous black person from 1992, except maybe Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman. And it is, it's about Eddie Murphy trying to choose between Robin Givens and eventually Halle Berry. And there was so much pressure on this movie to make money because it was the first, yeah, I mean, the first even nominal romantic comedy to star only black people. And there was so much pressure for this movie to make money so that somebody else would get to fall in love with Eddie Murphy (laughs) in a different movie that it just seemed it did. Should it matter that this movie isn't entirely successful um, as a romantic comedy? That pressure is old. It's older than Boomerang and it's real. And there really is a case for a movie not working and then you sort of get the whole opportunity taken off the table because it's deemed economically not viable. Well, the, the reason I ask is you have a moment in, I think it was in that uh, morality war story where you're talking about being at a dinner party. Oh, yeah. And you're talking about <laughs> the show Insecure yes. uh, starring uh, Issa, Issa Rae. Yeah. And... Uh, you're kind of like, oh, I'm watching, but like I'm, you know, I'm getting a little exasperated here. And some other member of the dinner party is like, what are you talking about? It's so great that like she's on TV and has a show. You should be happy with her. Um, people like her never could get on TV before. And I was wondering in that moment, like how you deal with that idea of, well, this is important that, that people's stories who were not previously on TV are being put on TV. Like, what happens when those two impulses run into conflict with each other? I'll never forget that night because it was one of the, like, I have a real, I don't know if everybody in this room feels this. I don't know if you have this, but my, the thing that gets my blood pressure from whatever a normal blood pressure is to whatever a bad blood pressure is, yeah, is being misunderstood yeah. or being told that the way that I am feeling or thinking is not how I'm actually feeling or thinking. So like if you said, I didn't like this movie and I was like, that's totally bullshit, Wesley. You did like that movie. That would bring you to full boil. It's even worse than that. It's like you you can't say that you don't like that movie because mm. X, Y, Z. Mm. So this guy was telling me that I could not, I couldn't say what I was saying because Issa Rae is a black woman. Mm. And to say this about Issa Rae is, I mean, blasphemous is too strong for what he meant, but I think that he he understood what I just took to be true, right? I know how special Issa Rae in this moment for this TV show, I know how special these things are, but I also think that none of this stuff that we call equality works if I'm not allowed to not like a show that I think could be better than it actually is. Who am I serving by pretending to this woman that her show is great when I don't think it is? And what do I, I mean, what difference is it? I mean, I do have a platform. I do work for the New York Times. Well, I have never, I had never written about that show until that piece. I understand that, that going to my job and typing out the words, I wish Insecure were better, yeah. is much different than sitting at a dinner party and saying the same thing, right? Yeah. They're different. They're, the power dynamic is different between me and the show. That said, I still don't think it serves anybody particularly well to pretend that the criteria by which you deem something successful as a creation if that is entirely predicated upon the mere fact that it exists that's not enough for me what do I do with that like how far do I get in, a, in the act of criticism by saying well you know here's the tv landscape for 50 years and lo and behold here's this show by a person who would not have had any place in this landscape period that's just not I don't know I don't that's not enough for me like what is this show like what is it doing is the thing that it's doing good relative to other shows like it and other shows like even on the platform um 
I just feel like there's a lot of context you can provide for a show like that and like why I personally want more of it because I think it actually has an ambition to be a thing that it isn't quite being yet and to hold her to the same standard that I would hold the mediocre, talented person who made that, that Meg Ryan movie. I just feel like real equality is to be able to say that Issa Rae, Issa Rae's show is okay. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a controversial thing to me, but I understand why it's upsetting to some people that I feel this way. Well, what happens when those kinds of uh, situations occur outside of the movie reviewing part of what you do? When it uh, comes to the larger, uh, I believe it's the cultural critics notebook. Is that right? Oh, at the times they call it a critics notebook. The critics notebook. So when you expand your, um, your lens to say, this is not just about a new show that's streaming. This is about um, something larger. Do those same kinds of, hey, you can't, shouldn't, or I would prefer you not say or feel this way uh, come up? No. But, you know, it's funny because in the context of, I mean, the way we're talking about this, I, I know I'm saying that this is a thing that I am feeling and that I, I don't like that this thing is happening. But I have had conversations, this piece came out of all of the conversations that I have had with other people mm -hmm. about this problem. And it's not just critics. It's people who are also at dinner parties who didn't like Crazy Rich Asians and are terrified to say it. Right. Or didn't even dislike Crazy Rich Asians, but just thought it was they didn't even think it was a romantic comedy like to, to change the genre of the movie into the genre they thought it actually was, which I stand with the people who are kind of puzzled by its being labeled a romantic comedy. But whatever. Um, the, the idea that there's a proscribed way of having, you know, an appreciation for a work of culture and that there's only like one or two ways to look at it and, and interpret it based on the the identity problem, right? Like once you get into the work, if you're if you can get in there to unpack what it is and what it's doing, that's that that's separate, but you have to sort of get past the sort of identity question at some point first or second. And so there are a lot of people frustrated by how to talk about this because and this is young people. I had a lot, I've talked to a lot of college students just out of college people who aren't writers who read that piece and were just like yeah I've I've been nervous and it's not just white people the, is the other thing because I got really scared two things I was scared of with this essay one was I was going to be the like new cranky pants black person what? like conservative <laughs> black Wesley that would be a crazy twist but <laughs> no but that is the way like I'm 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 like Stanley Crouch like, I'm now like, do you, Stanley Crouch, anybody? Uh, it's too long <laughs> to go into. Um, like, I'm now, like, this is not a, like, one-to-one analogy. I'm like, I'm the Herman Cain of, of culture criticism, right? Like, I don't want that. Um, but the rent is too damn high. I just, I, I'll accept if that was going to happen, I would accept it, because yeah. I, I can hear... I can hear a 22-year-old me maybe reading that thing and being like, this guy is, I'm, this guy. I'm canceling my Wesley subscription because he doesn't get it. Right. And the other thing I was afraid of, it, like the, the corollary frustration that I was afraid of being misinterpreted as, as giving license to was white people being like, oh, it's okay to like, not like Asian movies with Asian people. I can finally say it. <laughs> I can finally say that Ava DuVernay is like, you know, I can say bad things about Ava DuVernay and always wanted to. There's nothing in that piece that lets you do that. But I was nervous. I don't feel there is. I mean, correct me if, if I'm wrong. But I was really afraid that it would be, it could be interpreted as giving license to one species of abhorrent person but also casting me in a way that i don't see myself well if if you get canceled i mean you can still be like hey screw you I, i'm keeping the pulitzer you know if, <laughs> if people think you're stanley crouch that's it could be worse there's a worse form of old person but if you were 22 now um you know coming out of uh college trying to start a career as a critic like the stakes are very different depending 
on where you are. You have like a longer way to fall, but you have a certain uh, gravitas also, or a certain benefit of the doubt people are willing to grant you. And I think that what's always like striking to me is really how um, volatile the stakes are for a young person getting into doing what you do, which is basically thinking through ideas, morality, all of these big topics in real time mm -hmm. on the internet. Mm -hmm. I do not envy that at all. Be I don't because you're, you get frozen in time. I mean, for as like as quick as everything on the internet is, it also is weirdly permanent. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, old tweets, old tweets are now, this is, I'm on a, This would be a tangent if I didn't end the sentence right now, but old tweets, um, <laughs> I, the, the concept of the hot take has always been funny to me because yeah. it cools and then crusts in the casserole dish and everybody can just see it sitting in the sink waiting for it. Like nobody's ever going to wash that thing out and it'll just always sit there. And I feel like the way that we think about how we respond to things is obviously changed and I, I mean, if anybody was asking me like, well, what do you, and I get asked this not infrequently, like, what do you, how do you think I should go about pursuing my dreams of, of being a critic? And I don't know about the, how to go about it because just the way I wound up getting my first jobs is just, the world doesn't work that way anymore. There was no, the, the internet had nothing to do with, with how I got my first jobs. But now, of course, the answer to that question has so much to do with the internet. How did you get your first jobs? Um, luck. And nobody likes to hear luck as an answer, but it's, I mean, I am good at my job. I'm, I am a talented person. This is not a self-esteem issue. Um, but I also think nothing that has happened to me at all happened only because somebody saw, because I'm talented, but somebody had to see that. And then there had to be a place to put me. And then I had to excel once I got there. You know what I mean? It's just the, like, then that happened over and over again, where like, I would just, there would be a job opening and somebody would think of me and, or, or I'd apply and, you know, I would get the job, but I, it's just, that in some ways is how it should work. But at the same time, I appreciate that based on what a, I would tell a 22 year old now as luck. Um, I can't say get lucky. Um, but what, so were you, what were you, you were sending I in was, like your college writing or what, what were you sending uh, in for these jobs? Yeah. I mean, I had, I had that. And I, I did work at a website where, you know, I did film reviews for a lot of that time. Um, but what really happened was I applied for a job at the Washington post that I was not entirely forthcoming about my qualifications to do that job. And, uh, I might have been in one of those 80s, 80s uh, C. Thomas Howell, Matthew Broderick sort of movies where like you, you tell one little lie and the one little lie turns into all kinds of problems. So my lie in this movie is I lied and said I had a driver's license that I didn't have. Mm. Um, and I had never driven a car before in my life. But the job was to drive around Prince George's County and tell people what to do on the weekends. Um, I was like, I'll just figure that out later. <laughs> but the luck part is I didn't have to continue with the lie because my resume got sent to this woman, Sharon Rosenhaus in San Francisco, and I lucked out and got a job out there um, at the San Francisco Examiner. But to answer your question, though, the thing that I say that I would say now about the way you should think about practicing any of the writing you do is maybe you don't have to be the first person to respond to something that happens in the world. I mean, I think this is the, this is one of the years where we learned there really is no value in that. You know, I think just the Lincoln Memorial incident alone, I mean, the, the video of the sort of disputed video and then the counter video and then the counter videos and then the response to the responses. I mean, at some point, all I, as I was watching this unfold, all I could think was, 
I'm so glad I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> you know, because like a lot of people, I saw that first one. I was like, I don't know, Covington. And I don't not feel that way, but I definitely think that the that the sort of deeper, more complicated response to what happened, if you just watch the whole original video, um, I could never have tweeted what I might have tweeted had I tweeted immediately, right? And I just don't do that anymore. And I caution everybody who wants to like sort of think seriously. I mean, some people can get it right out of the gate. Like, I just think it's harder to do that because you don't even know now what you're even responding to. I have always preferred, to, sometimes to my detriment, to just wait as long as I can possibly wait to write about something that isn't like this water bottle, you know? To try to like put this water bottle into a larger context. Like, I mean, the the Ralph Northam blackface incident, for instance, was a thing that everybody like I got asked to write about that almost immediately. And my response was, I would like to take a day, just one whole day, to see what happens and what not only what happens, but like how I feel about what is happening. And I think the the taking of like just extra time to be to be more thoughtful um, and less reactive is, um, I mean, to the extent that I have any wisdom to impart, that is that is that is it. Just just wait a second, because somebody's gonna get there before you get there anyway, right? Like you're gonna be like you're gonna have the third hottest take. Um, but let and, me ask you about that, because your your writing has a quality of you working through ideas through the writing. Mm -hmm. Like, in fact, if I were to describe the structure of one of your um, pieces, a lot of time is it feels like the reader is puzzling their way through something with you as a guide and that you're going to take me somewhere and that you're going to end with an idea that maybe it's not that I would have disagreed with at the start. I might not have even thought of that idea. And I, I assume that you yourself have to sort of go through that idea searching process to write about it. I mean, a day is a bit of time, but it's not much. Like mm -hmm. how, how do you puzzle through things yourself on a deadline? I don't know. I mean, it is, again, like luck and magic are not things that people want to hear because they're not practical and you can't teach them, right? But I do think that there is something, re I mean, and everybody who writes has a moment like this where you just, you don't know sometimes where the thought came from. But if I sit there long enough and I think, I, I definitely know that as a, as a matter of process, I want to work out what all of the options are. And I want to be fair. My primary goal in writing anything is, is, I want to be as fair, like, like, we can just stay with Ralph Northam for a second. Yeah. Like, my impulse with him as a person who is kind of writing a book about blackface and blackness as a performance was to be like, okay, I kind of understand. I know the history of the thing that he has oddly not been counseled to bring up during this press conference. Like, at no point, well, because probably nobody knew, but at some point, like, he tells his story about his staffer who says, you know, blackface, basically I'm paraphrasing what the staffer says, blackface is wrong. He doesn't then, there, at no point does anybody involved with this fiasco say, hey, Ralph, when you go out and give this press conference, you might want to just, like, you know, give a little thumbnail history of why this is, why exactly this is wrong. Yeah. He and, gives more of a thumbnail history of moonwalking than right. he does blackface. <laughs> and so, I mean, but the affronteries of that incident, like yeah. that particular press conference, they just sort of piled up. And there was just something he was so, he, this is a person who obviously, like simultaneously enjoyed being himself and couldn't help being himself. Like the look on his wife's face, for instance, was so telling to me. I mean, she was, you know, she was doing, she seemed more like his lawyer than his wife. Um, what, was her, what was her phrase that can be read both ways? Uncertain, um, oh, shucks. Oh, like inappropriate. Inappropriate sir. circumstances. Yeah. Like, it's either in space appropriate circumstances or inappropriate circumstances. <laughs> you couldn't tell because she was so straight about it. And That was an answer to the question, do you still moonwalk? Right, right, yes. yes. Or can you still in, moonwalk? Inappropriate circumstances, which is a weird syntactical response, right? <laughs> like, like she's, a, she's the wife robot, inappropriate circumstances. Yeah. 
or she's like a wife in appropriate circumstances. Yeah. Um, but I was inclined in writing about this incident to just be, I wanted to be as fair to all of the problem as I possibly could. But look, I mean, we're talking about a person who I think was clearly lying about the photo. That is Lying in the I, sense that he says he's not one of the two people in that photo. In the, in the indicting photo in the blackest black face next to the KKK guy and in, in the, the guy in the KKK costume. I, I mean, I did, like without actually being able to like remove the black face off this person, like the dental work. Has anybody, I mean, his height, everything about the person in that photograph was the person giving that fiasco of a press conference. I couldn't put that in the piece. I could just imply that I believe that he's lying when he says, I mean, because he originally acknowledged doing, there's just so, it's so rich. You just like, as a person who is being asked to think about this, I just wanted a day to just get all the stuff in order, but also to wait and see if there was going to be another shooter drop. Do you bring your like history as a movie reviewer to how you write about a politician in blackface? Yeah, because again, like I want to be able, well, I've gotten pretty good about marrying my feelings to the establishment of the furniture in the room, right? Yeah. Like I can now, I now feel pretty good about like sighing or laughing or you know, crying or like as I put things where I think they're supposed to. Go. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, what is the furniture of the Ralph Northam press conference? Like if there's the commentary and there's the like text, like the text is the, the press conference itself. I think that in this case, this is a good question. Uh, the furniture is probably the thing that we all know, which is the photo, right? The photo. The we yearbook. all, we all know the reason for the press conference. We also know at this, at, by the time the thing that I write is going to, this is the other thing. I also want people to, to know to some degree what I'm talking about a little bit. Right. Um, so you know about the moon. You've heard something about a moonwalk. You've heard something about blackface in a yearbook photo. So those are your props, right? Those are the things that you can sigh and like eye roll your way through until you have to get to the point at which you've set all this stuff up and then you have to then think about what you just witnessed in this press conference. Um, and then you take a little bit of the other stuff that happens in this press conference and you, you weave it in later. But at some point what you're really doing is you're providing a, like an American historical context ultimately for the thing that he did and then what it means to have denied having done it, but then offer some alternative. The, the galling thing about the press conference wasn't the, wasn't, it wasn't really the photo, right? The photo was bad. But it was the introduction of a red herring blackface incident, like a nicer, more benign one that would explain how he got confused in the first place. Oh, no, no, no. There was another blackface incident that I was involved <laughs> in. And that one involved Michael Jackson because the Michael Jackson would seem to make it okay too. There's, I mean, the Michael Jackson thing was like a gift from God for me because I probably would not have been compelled to like interrupt my weekend to write about this. But the Michael Jackson thing was like, it's Michael Jackson. Of all the people you are using to be that kind of black, you choose the person for whom the like outward appearance of blackness is so contrary to his vision of himself as an artist, right? It just was, the irony was so amazing to me. Um, like, he could have been anybody for Halloween. <laughs> but he chose to say that he was Michael Jackson, and there's no proof, right? He just said it. We still don't know that it actually happened. Nobody's come forward and has said, you know, oh, I remember that time when, when, when Governor Northam was, was moon. He won that, and he won the contest. Who came, did anybody come forward and say, um, I have a, here's a picture of Ralph and his trophy. Yeah. None of that's. I just feel like this was such a fugue state of caughtness. He just got caught out and, and needed to come up with a story. Anyway, it, it, that was so, for me, that's just a rich, I mean, for all of us, I think the richness of a person who is evidently having a bad day um, with, with what feels like, a, like just such a strange admission and you don't know what's true, 
And we're talking about racism and blackface and the leader, the like elected leader of a state. It's 2019. Like it's the most 2019 thing to happen. <laughs> like I just feel like it's so perfectly encapsulated so many things about where we are right now from the lying to the racism to the effrontery to like have that press conference. Confessing crimes while denying other crimes. Right. Right. There's got to, is there a word for that where we, your know. defense of one thing involves implicating yourself in several other things? I'm sure some European country has got it. All right. Along the same um, lines, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, Green Book, <laughs> the uh, best picture. Speaking of, of this year. speaking of that, so 2019. Well, so, yeah, the, uh, among um, things that will later be in the CNN 2019 uh, roundup, <laughs> I was reading through your archive and I was reading your writing about Green Book winning best picture. And it sort of occurred to me, wow. I haven't seen Green Book. I've read 15 or 20 articles about it. I've talked about it with people. I have a fairly nuanced understanding of other people's objections to it. And also, I've listened to um, Mike Francesa on sports radio talk about how much he, he liked he it. He loved it. Oh, he loved it. Oh. I know. I, I would say there's a significant portion of the world I know about their opinions of green book yet i have never even for a second thought about watching green book and it's not because i object to it it's just because i have a bunch of other movies i want to watch a lot more so i wonder like for what you do mm -hmm. like how does it change when most of the things that are being the most passionately debated are not even experienced as firsthand art I mean, that is also so 2019. Very 2019. Um, I think in the case of, I mean, so there's your sort of larger procedural and practical and philosophical question, right? Like what, who is determining what the cultural conversation pieces are? And in the case of Green Book, it's the academy, right? Like the reason to think about Green Book in the way that, that I thought about it was as a thing that was that seemed to me almost certain to win the Best Picture Oscar. And I just felt like in the context of the Academy Awards, which is a thing that despite the numbers, the viewership numbers being down and all of that stuff, I think in the year that you have a movie like Black Panther and you've got Black Klansman, and you have If Bill Street Could Talk, which admittedly was not a huge hit, but it exists. The year after Get Out, the year after, Get, you know, two years after Moonlight wins Best Picture, in the same year that you have this amazing thing happening in New York theater, which is like the best plays that you can see being written by black men and black women, best new plays. Here comes this movie that feels almost algorithmically engineered to deny the reality of all the progress that this this industry is trying to make that American art is trying to make in terms of who gets to speak you have this movie that shows up that claims to be part of that conversation because look who's driving the car it's not Mahershala Ali's not driving the car because in 1989, he certainly would have been and Viggo Mortensen would have been in the back. No, it's Viggo Mortensen driving the car. Now Mahershala's sitting in the back. He's the passenger, which is supposed to be some sort of, you know, Mahershala Ali's character, Don Shirley, has all this, has the power. But the way the narrative works, he has no power. The story is Tony Villalonga's story. And the story is that Tony, who is definitely a racist, inarguably a racist, we know that in the opening two scenes of the movie, we see that this person does not like black people. And so we under, I mean, at least I understand based on, I don't even need to see any other movie. I kind of can assume that the journey this person's gonna go on is from being a racist to being a person who will hug a black person in his own, in his own kitchen by the time the movie's over. <laughs> Mahershala has nowhere to go but in the backseat of that car. And in the, I mean, I can't even go into all the civil rights metaphors his literal position represents in a movie like this. 
And you spend this whole movie watching all of these horrible white people do all these horrible things to, to Bershaw, Lee's character. And the person who we're supposed to believe is doing the least horrible things to him is the hero of this movie. Fuck you. <laughs> I don't even like Black Panther that much. Like, I do like it, but I don't like it, like... I just think that we are... Things are changing, and a movie like this thinks it's, it's like, it is, it's so 2019. With all due respect to anybody who loves this movie, I, I understand why people who love it love it, because it works as a movie. Like, it works. Peter Farrelly made it. Peter Farrelly is a professional maker of comedies. It is a comedy, and it works as a comedy. The things that are funny, they're not all funny. Some of the comedy doesn't work to me. But I have seen this movie three times with audiences who, for whom the comedy actually works. To see this movie is to fall under its spell and it is to laugh at it and it is to feel like, like there is an optimism being presented in a moment where there seems to be none. And so that, the final sequence of that movie really does, if you, if you wanna believe what it is saying, it is saying that this awful, shitty person can be made good by driving around a black guy who's socially and class-wise and educationally and demeanor-wise is better than he is. I know that movie thinks it believes that, but that's not the movie you're watching. That movie belongs to a history of movies that don't believe that black people deserve to be in the front seat of a car or any vehicle, movie or automobile. And I just can't... <laughs> I can't do that in the same year that, that you have this black director building this kingdom of thoughtful, complicated, like rigorously constructed blackness. Like, I mean, the last 20 minutes of Black Panther would eat Green Book alive. And the debating being done between these two men in Black Panther is, it is mind-blowing, the, the, the Killmonger... T'Challa argument about like what the point of, of staying in Wakanda actually is, I have never seen that in a movie that costs more than $200,000. You know, like the idea that like that movie made up $1.5 billion with that sequence in it, it just blows my mind. So the reason to bring up Green Book is Black Panther. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? It is, I don't even think it should have won Best Picture. If I had to pick 10 movies, I don't know that I would have picked Black Panther is one of my 10 movies. But if the Academy is giving me eight movies and one of them is Black Panther and you give it to Green Book, I, I, no. And I knew it was going to happen because I saw it with an audience and I felt like the thing that stuck in my mind was just how, 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 how I almost fell for it. <laughs> well, I, I wonder, do you think about that in your writing? Do you think about not just how I took this movie, but how does this other person, this, like, it seems to in a movie like Green, uh, Green Book that the debate erupted almost immediately as the movie became a success and it became symbolic of something larger, just like Black Panther is symbolic of something larger, Crazy Rich Asians is symbolic of something larger. It's, I guess it's a good time for a critic in a certain way in that movies are central to how we talk about larger issues, but it's also a strange time to be a critic in that in some ways those controversies overshadow the pure act of movie going. Yes and no, right? Like, I mean, Black Panther was fun to talk about for the six months we were talking about Black Panther because everybody knew what you were talking about. Everyone had gone to see it. Right. $1.5 billion right. worth of people. Right. And that was fun. I mean, Get Out was the same way. Wonder Woman was another version of this where we've, you know, it's funny, the sort of colonization of the superhero movie of our, of, you know, of the global imagination is, it's simultaneously not great. But the thing that I don't think is great about it is that it is crowded. It has destroyed the entire middle of American movie going. I don't have a sort of real objection to superhero movies. I just think that the people who make them are lazy and unimaginative, not the actual movies, but the studio level. 
and it is just destroyed like it is destroyed the superhero movies destroyed the star system it has destroyed stardom it has destroyed entire genres of movie making because there's nobody interesting enough to put in them if you are a star you at some point will be rerouted into it like brie larson you know i'm sure she's not she's not mad at herself for being in captain marvel but i do wonder if like there's a way that you lose something by Brie Larson doing only King Kong, Skull Island, after winning an Oscar and Captain Marvel. Um, well, we definitely lose something as uh, I'm going to be the uh, white Stanley crowd chair and um, be crotchety. <laughs> You've got uh, the bald head. I've got the, the bald head. And the, beard um, and the glasses. We used to have collective fictions of movies. Everyone saw E.T. Everyone saw these movies and they represented some sort of a common thread of narrative amongst people. And it feels to me that as both the superheroes have taken over the big screen, but also as streaming has fractured what people watch, we have increasingly little common ground as viewers. You can't really assume the same kinds of things about how people watch today, which puts you in a slightly different position in terms of like, who are you writing to and what are, what sort of ideas are you writing about? Are you uh, giving a guide to what to watch on Netflix? Or are you talking about uh, the racial politics of a best picture nominee? Those two things seem really far away from each other. Yeah. But I mean, that's not really, I mean, I can bridge those I mean I can I can make sense can of those different no I mean that's not hard but I will say like when you put it that way I think that the the need to want to connect to people through culture yeah is treat like I mean you guys have all had this experience right what do you are you did, did you guys watch Russian Doll uh, I watched it no no I mean I'm, this is like I'm I'm okay. gonna be all of the oh, people this is the bit. you okay. watch Russian Doll <laughs> no I didn't watch Russian Doll do you see the, what about a uh, new catastrophe season? That, 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 that's back. Uh, I've been meaning to watch that. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, well, you know, Game of Thrones is coming. I, I, I stopped after season two. Like the, the um, spinning of the buffet wheel to you land on something you can talk, like a TV yep. show you can talk to somebody about. Yeah. It is the single most exasperating like culture conversation starter it just like you, you're trying to light a match that you know I'm, I'm i got one match left and yep. if this doesn't i'm gonna have to go to the bathroom and pretend to to have left the party because it's putting everyone into like a bad first date situation yeah i mean it's like, really, oh i guess we don't have anything in common it's not fun for me and it's not fun for any of us right this is the the apocalypse for me right like it is the thing that doesn't feel like a crater like a it's not the end of the world it's the end of of a bunch of other things that like are actually like that are also meaningful and like less easy to to see as being over but the idea that like i mean i don't want to go back to a three network system but it was a lot easier to just be like did y'all watch home improvement last night yeah <laughs> you a cbs kind of person or an nbc kind of person i mean i don't want home improvement back but i'm just saying um the, the the point really is just like we we really do look to culture to bring us together and the idea that I would spend all this time trying to find a show that a stranger and I have both seen in order to talk about it for what 10 empty minutes at a party those empty minutes are really meaningful because for whatever reason for that little bit of time I am actually finding a way to talk to a person I don't know and this work is a conduit for that. And, you know, I think that part of the problem, this is going to sound crazy, and I've never said this out loud before, and it <laughs> might, like, when it comes out of my mouth, sound totally asinine, but I think that's why we're kind of a little bit in this mess. Because think of the thing that we actually have in common to talk about now. What is it? What is the thing that, no matter where you go, on earth really now, what is the thing that you wind up talking about? It's that dude. It's him. We talk about him all the time. He is the cultural product that we all have in common and we all know something about. And it is the thing that is dividing us in one sense, but bringing us together on the other, in the other sense. And there's and, a new episode every day. And there's a new episode every day. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I feel like 
I don't know. I feel like it's really, really toxic. The, the thing that we are looking to, like I was on a flight today, this really handsome guy comes in to the plane and I'm like, he's handsome. He sits right in front of me and he's sitting next to this other guy. There's a wrestling convention in town this weekend or like a, like a tournament, sorry, convention. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, the NCAA wrestling tournament is this, is this weekend. Um, and these two guys sit, the handsome guy used to play football and the guy he sits next to, little chatty Kathy, it, he, these two guys start to like talk up, um, talk, starts like, I played football, you know, I'm, I'm part of this wrestling expedition from New York to Pittsburgh to watch the tournament. And once they went out of, they got tired of talking about sports and then it turned amazingly to him, Right. And the, the atmosphere around, like, what is, what, why are they lying about him? And I couldn't tell if the handsome football player guy was, they were agreeing in some way, but I also felt like I shouldn't be listening to this. This is, this is two white men having a moment with each other about their white maleness in a way. Because, I mean, everything was just about how exasperated they were. He, this one guy was feeling, and the other guy was kind of listening to me, like, yeah, okay, I, I hear that, I hear that, I hear that. And... Like, that was the thing that kind of, like, that gave them something to talk about when sports, when they ran out of sports. And I was like, there's no way they're going to talk about Trump. There's no way they're going to do it. And sure enough, they did. And I kind of liked that they didn't even seem to care that I was sitting behind them. They felt like, I mean, not that they should have, but there is a version of that conversation that does not happen because the one guy... There like, is a New York Times no. reporter in right behind no, Well, no, <laughs> there is a Negro behind us. Yeah. Just stop, stop, stop. Um... But I, I do think that, I don't know. I mean, this is the reason to really be glad there's a new Jordan Peele movie this week. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because we could just go see that and try to figure out what the hell is happening in that movie. And we have like, well, we can spend six months doing it while also like talking a little bit less about this other stuff, which is like important to talk about in some ways because it's the future of, of so many things um, or like the end of a bunch of other things. But I do think that looking in this presidency for some kind of common ground is, I think, ultimately kind of to the detriment of everything else that's kind of wonderful about us. Thank you all uh, so much for coming. <laughs> Thanks for coming, everybody. That was the live long-form podcast Thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to my guest, Wesley Morris. Thanks to my co-host, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to everyone at Pit Writers. Uh, our intern, Tyler McCloskey. Uh, Jean Marie Laskus, who runs Pit Writers. Uh, thanks to Tim Maddox, uh, former intern and current long-form editor. Uh, great program there. They have been in support of what we do for many years. Uh, if you go to longform.org, they have a link, and you can go check out everything that Pit Writers is all about. If you'd like to get in touch with us, it's podcast at longform.org. Uh, we're starting to do very slowly more live shows, so if you'd like to have one in your city, send us an email uh, or just send us some feedback. All right, see you next week. <laughs>